Listener Production. Part of you is taking advantage of that. You know, I'm a pretty girl, I'm going to use that, and that's my currency, my face is my fortune, I'm going to go as far with that as I can. But you don't really have much option and there's nothing else that's being offered to you. So, yes, I did take advantage of that and I'm grateful for that. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Rachel Ward is an award-winning film and television director. Like many women, her life is a series of reinventions. She was a Hollywood star in the 80s, And soon after that, she made her name in the Thornbirds TV series, where she says she made off with one of Australia's most iconic men, Brian Brown. The pair have now been married for 40 years. Rachel says she's now most comfortable behind the camera, and her biggest role yet is being a farmer. Her latest film, the documentary Rachel's Farm, it's a deeply personal look at how she's changed farming practices on her farm to combat climate change. Now, I loved Rachel's doco, and it made me feel empowered about what we could do to make a difference. And I couldn't wait to talk to this determined, persistent and creative woman who isn't afraid to get her hands dirty. So great to meet you, because I've been a massive fan of yours. thank you. Well, I've followed your trajectory too. Oh, us girls, not easy, is it? I know we've got to stick together in terms of backing one another's work and what we do and all of that. Yeah, And and when you see somebody else's life played out, it's very interesting for other women to see it. And it's because very often when it's happening to you, you can't quite see it. You're very clouded by: is this me? Is this normal? Is this just me being difficult? Or is it actually, have I got absolutely every right, you know, to protest here? You're so spot on, Rachel, because when you're at the centre of a storm, and here I am, I suppose, I'm talking about that time when I was on the Today Show, Mm. and it was so public Mm. and so humiliating in a way, and you don't appreciate it. And I remember Jan Event, who... I wanted to be when I grew yeah, up. Yeah. And I still want to be Yana Vent. Yeah. <laughs> I just think she's extraordinary. And I remember she said to me, hang in there. She said, it will suddenly start to turn for no reason. Yes, right. Like yeah. that pendulum will swing. And I remember holding on to that. And she said, it won't make any sense why mm. it's suddenly, you know, the moment you feel like you're at the sort of bottom, so to speak, mm. and everyone has it in for you. Mm. But she said, there's going to be an upswing and then it will start to turn. Mm. So hang mm. in. What good advice. And I think as women, it's so important that we reach out to one another. Mm. And even if it's not by talking with advice, by the work that we do. And I think, Rachel, for you, Mm -hmm. the amazing work that you have done over the years with finding your voice has inspired so many of us. Oh, I hope so. That's very nice of you to say that. You can't see it if it's your own life, can you? You just go, well, this is my next step. This is a way that, you know, I can stay relevant for myself or, you know, on top of 
what is important to me for my age and my gender and keep moving forward. And as long as one keeps having the courage, I suppose, to give it a go, you kind of survive. The minute you lose the courage, and the courage is very ephemeral, you know, it comes and goes, doesn't it? There are times when you just feel, oh, I'm pulling my put, I'm kidding myself here. Yeah. And I think other women give women a lot for having a go, for throwing yourself in there for the courage. And courage, I think that is such an important thing. And Mm. as you say, it is ephemeral because it's often you have to be most courageous when you are most fearful Mm. and brave. Mm. And to me, being courageous and brave is facing that fear Mm. and just going for it anyway, Mm. giving Mm. it a crack. And sort of blocking out the naysayers, the negative. Well, the film is Rachel's Farm. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it is very much your journey of discovering your sense of belonging Mm. and your connection with your beautiful farm and the land, but switching that up. So perhaps explain for our listeners what is at the heart of it, regenerative farming, which Mm. I find quite hard to say because there's R's in it. I always struggle with R's. Regen, just regen. Okay, regen. Mm. So what does it actually mean? Well, this is where Brian bonks me on the head and says, (laughs) you can't say that. But I would say it's about restoring natural cycles. Now, natural cycles are things like solar, water, microbes, carbon, all of those things. And there is a natural cycle for that. So what we have done in agriculture, I mean, I'll just talk about Australia, since colonisation, is basically thwart the natural functions through overuse of pesticides, herbicides, and chemical fertilisers. So we are getting in the road of nature, basically. We are putting our foot on the neck of nature and we are saying, no, we're not listening to your seasons. We're not listening to what, you know, what is underneath the ground. We are going to dictate what you produce for us, nature. So we think we're above it. And I suppose regenerative agriculture is really about understanding that we're not above it. We are part of nature and we need to make bloody sure that we stay part of nature because if we start getting above ourselves, we start negating the value of so many things out there that are essential, the chain of evolution. You know, you suddenly look what's happened with the bees and you suddenly throw all these pesticides out there and the bees start to suffer, the bees start to get rare and rare. Well, who's going to fertilise all the flowers? Who's going to fertilise the corn? Who's going to fertilise whatever, whatever? So we have to be very careful that we don't obliterate the biodiversity that is in there, that is there, and we're doing a very good job of it, by the way, of of obliterating it. So basically, regenerative agriculture is about reinstating, restoring those natural cycles. And, you know, we're kidding ourselves if we think we can live without them. The documentary, Rachel's Farm, it's a very personal experience. Mm. And you begin it by talking about this joyful time in your life. You were a grandmother for the first time, Mm. but at that joy was also mixed with despair because of where you saw the planet heading Mm. and what Mm. sort of life your grandson would be inheriting. Yep. So it was, you know, when he used to visit the farm, there was such a sense of wonder from him about nature. You know, he so loved puddling in the mud and, you know, you could just see and he loved going out to the cattle and he loved being in the tractor and he just had such a sort of engagement with what was there, the natural world. And, you know, knowing what one knows today and feeling a sense of 
foreboding, really, about what we've done and where we are going. And ah, I mean, it's it is nuanced. It is hard. Where is the truth? How bad is it? Is difficult. But I think we know enough to know that we're not going in the right direction. Yeah. So I suppose it was an existential crisis, really, about where he was going to end up. This beautiful, innocent boy. What was life going to throw at him? I mean, I I experienced the Black Summer fires, which were at the time they knocked you in the guts, but I went, this is Australia. I've never experienced a fire before. This is part of our, our, our life, cycle, our really. cycle, yes. But when they went further and further and they decimated more and more hectares, I went, whoa, this is really exceptional. There is so much more going on here. And people everywhere started to say, this is much more than just a bushfire. So it was that that made me go, where are we going? And what can, the impotence, it was the impotence, I think, that made me feel so frustrated and so defeated. And then when I started to look into regenerative farming and when Mick came, my farm manager came to me and started talking about it. That's Mick Jr. Mm. And he was what, a hoon on a bike? Is that how you yeah, refer to on, him? hoon on his bike. I've, <laughs> I knew him since he was about 12, 13 and he'd be ruining our Saturdays all he through the, the weekends. because he joining farm? Yeah, he had the adjoining farm, exactly. So I just would hear this constant motorbike all over the hills. And he came to me and just said, I just don't think this farming is working either financially or ecologically. And he started to explain why. And he was starting to listen to an alternative way of farming. And he went, this makes great sense to me. What about you? I didn't even want cattle on the land. I was a vegetarian. I had a very different idea about what cattle do to land and I was very much listening to the narrative that they're very destructive, that they're doing all that burping. And, and um, the farting and the whole... It's the burping, actually. Oh, it's the, really? Yeah, it's the burping. It's not the Isn't farting. Isn't that funny? Because yeah. I never thought about cows burping. Yeah, they do that <laughs> when they're chewing the cud because they've got three stomachs. And so they chew their stomach uh, microbes, break down all the grasses in one stomach and then it gets passed to another stomach and then... The air, the gas, gets released through their burps as they're chewing the cud. Again, it's another big fear-mongering thing, I think, to latch on to the methane of cattle. Yes, it is an issue, but it is a total natural process, and ah, I'm quite torn by how much one needs to interfere with, again, with natural cycles. Your film, though, what I enjoyed so much about it is it explains it to people watching in a very, I believe, sort of simple, user-friendly way. Yes. Often I think we can feel powerless in the face of climate change. What can we do? Yeah. We're not doing enough. Exactly. But what I find very inspiring about you, Rachel, is you're not just a talker, you're a doer. Mm-hmm. And you have this extraordinary brain that does all of this research and then you go for it. Where does that come from? Because a lot of us can talk and talk and talk, but we don't actually do it. And you have turned your farm around into this sort of EOV, verified farm. Mm -hmm. You made that happen. So where does that drive and that persistence come from? Well, number one, I would say I'm so lucky to have a piece of land. Yeah, so I think you do start to think about yourself as a custodian of the land, particularly as it's unceded land, and essentially I am farming on stolen property, and I need to be very aware of what I'm doing with that property. I mean, 
you know, during the film, the Walker family, Indigenous local family, came around, came to the farm. And I remember as they stepped out of the car, I said, welcome to the farm. And I just felt like, oh, my God, I'm in this horrendous position of actually saying, welcome to my farm. And, you know, I'm very equivocal about whether it's my farm or their farm or whose farm farm it is, our farm. But anyway, they were incredibly gracious and fabulous. And I felt were very pleased with the way that we were working with the land. And I felt they absolutely got it and that they spoke the same language. They had the same reverence for nature. They helped me understand what was going on. And I don't know, they were so in sync. It was coming from two very different places. I think the Regen movement has definitely come from, you know, white colonial males and a few, a few women sprinkled in there. And obviously the indigenous come from a millennia knowledge, but they actually happen to reflect each other. So that was a very confirming thing, I think, when Kenny, who's in the film, comes on the land and starts to sort of go, absolutely, this is the right way to be doing it. And we need to be given space for all the creatures, all the biodiversity that's out there, and not just being selective and squashing one in order to just mass produce the other. You work incredibly hard to turn your farm around. I mean, there you are mucking out trucks full of poo. and and, I love all that. That's not hard. Oh, yeah, I love that. Have you always loved doing that? Yeah, I think I have. Well, I grew up on a farm. So, I mean, I remember when the kids would go to the farm and they'd have friends up to the farm. And we have a beautiful big dam there. It actually looks a bit like Kakadu, the whole thing, because we've just, you know, really made an effort to expand our water on the land. And they would be so sort of silly about putting their feet in the mud. You know, they were really, everything was yucky. And I'm very glad that my kids have had the opportunity to not find it yucky or other, that they find it very natural. And I think I've always been like, I think when you grow up on the land, it, do, it isn't yucky. It's all fabulous and it's all part of nature and it's fun. So I find it fun. I mean, I find all of that work. And and also I really like physical activities. I hate going to the gym. And so if I can find physical things, like when I'm doing my, doing the whippersnipper is better than any Pilates class. (laughs) Because you're standing with your your hips front on and you've just, you're just moving your, your, your middle. And you love doing it too. I can tell you how to. And you've got your arms, you know, you're having to, you know, get some muscle tone in your arms and you're climbing up into cattle yards and out the other side and you're pushing cattle forward. You know, it's a physical day which is great. I love that. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I should have had, really had a career on the land somehow, somewhere. But but you do now. But I do now. You mentioned that you grew up on the land, but you lived in a manor. Mm-hmm. You've been quoted as saying, you know, you were born with a silver spoon. Mm-hmm. So what was that like? Was it sort of as we see sort of brideshead revisited styles? Well, it depends what you define as silver spoon or privilege. I mean, children don't really care. They don't see privilege. They don't notice it. It's interesting to go, well, what is privilege as a child? As a child, it's having your parents' undivided attention and I suppose learning through wonderment and opportunity of being outside, I would say. But, you know, that wasn't the case. I mean, outside was the case for me, being out and I was grateful to be in the country. But I was certainly not privileged with having parents' undivided attention. It was very much a them and us thing. We were brought up by, you know, paid help. And I really didn't have a particular relationship with my mother or my father. 
until I was about 16, 17. So and we went to boarding school really early. So you can talk about growing up with privilege. And also, you know, you can talk about growing up in that world of privilege. But as a woman, it is certainly not privilege. As a woman, if you are very much a second-class citizen, you are made to feel like a second-class citizen. And in every way, you are. And in every way, the man, the value of the man is put in front of the woman. And so that I don't call privilege. Although I go, yes, I was brought up in, you know, inverted commas, privilege. Let's actually look at what this privilege is because it doesn't really pertain to either children or uh, as a woman. I read an interview that you had done where you said, essentially, as a woman, your sort of attractiveness and your ability to entertain, when that diminished, you were moved further and further mm, down oh, the you table. you your homework. That's right. So I was all, you know, as a young, pretty girl, I was always placed next door to the host, who would very often play footsie-footsie under the table with his wife at the other end. And I could see that the plainer, older women were moved down the table. To begin with, you don't see it. You just, it seems normal. It was almost when Brian entered the picture that he saw it so glaringly. And you kind of go, yeah, absolutely, you're right. This is horrifying. Anyway, by that time, I was not part of it. I was uncomfortable with it. And I wasn't quite sure why. But, you know, obviously I look back now and go, duh. But at the time, you know, it takes a while, doesn't it, to shirk off the things that you're conditioned to um, live within. You mentioned there that it wasn't until Brian came along mm. that you were able to see more clearly what mm. was happening. Just humour me, because for many people listening, they know you initially from Thornbirds mm-hmm. and the two of you falling in love on that set. And it was sort of like this great love story. What was it about Brian, I suppose, that opened your heart? I think it was his, the surety of his values. He was about 35. I was 25. He very much knew who he was. He'd grown up as a Catholic, so he had very clear values about right and wrong. And I think coming from a world that had very ambiguous values, contradictory values, I went from being part of that world, that very privileged world in England, to Hollywood, where basically as a woman, you are pretty much, I don't want to overstate it, but... No, say you know, it. Okay, well, for instance, one of the producers said, I only want women in my films if they're dead or on their backs. And, you know, and you kind of laugh at the time, but you kind of go, oh, well, actually, this is probably really why it is so hard to have any self-respect in this world. Part of you is taking advantage of that. You know, I'm a pretty girl. I'm going to use that. and That's my currency. My face is my fortune. I'm going to go as far with that as I can. But you don't really have much option and there's nothing else that's being offered to you. So, yes, I did take advantage of that and I'm grateful for that. But it was really, you know, it doesn't sustain itself, obviously. And and you start to ask all sorts of questions when you're losing your own self-respect. You start to realize that, of course, this is what you are in that film for. You are basically in the film for male fantasy. You're not really offering much else. You're just a sexualized fantasy figure which when I hit Hollywood was sort of in the 80s, was really hitting its strides. Because before that, I think women's roles had always been far more romanticized. Yes, they were, you know, they of course were sexual objects, but they were also romantically. You know, there was always much more self-respect and it wasn't so blatant. 
Um, and I think when by the time I got to Hollywood, it started to be all about getting get her in the red bathing suit with the diamond earrings and driving the Porsche and so whatever fantasy that was fulfilling. And wasn't there a moment too when there was a billboard? Yeah. And you just looked at yourself on this billboard. Was it with Jeff Bridges? Yeah, Jeff Bridges, yeah. And I look at it now and I go, God, it's pretty tame, honestly. I don't know why I've made such a fuss about it. But, you know, you look back and you think, and my mother used to say to me, don't take it all so seriously, darling. (laughs) But I think, you know, I think when you're a woman coming from that world, you actually do want to be taken seriously for something. I mean, why shouldn't you be taken seriously? I mean, it took me a long time to get over that, you know, don't take yourself seriously. But where would we all be if none of us took ourselves seriously? And I think when you grow up with not being taken seriously for anything, you are very kind of neurotic about anything that perpetuates you not being taken seriously. So me sort of sprawled all over Jeff Bridges on this mega billboard in on Sunset Boulevard where he looks just astonished. And, you know, they've obviously done everything to make your breasts look as big as they can. And, you know, and you just go, oh, God, this isn't the sum of me, I think you go. This is what's being made to be the sum of me, but it sure ain't the sum of me. And I think you start to go, well, you know, who really cares whether it is or it isn't? But, you know, just take it as it comes. But, you know. You're still but trying it to work out. You yeah, though, it does doesn't diminish it? you, and I, you know, it shouldn't, but it does. It does. I mean, you know, also you don't have that sense. I've got so much growing up to do. I've got so much more of life to, to express other parts of me. At that moment, it's all of you, and it's all about your sexuality. You though have proven those directors of the eighties wrong, with finding your voice, finding your sense of belonging but working out what you can do and what you're capable of. And, I mean, as a director, you're extraordinary. Thank you very much. That's very nice of you. I don't know, but I wouldn't say extraordinary. Well, you are. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, you can't really answer those questions. So what was the question about that before I just bathed? That that loveliness, that's very nice. I certainly don't take that loveliness for granted, I can tell you. I suppose my question is that you didn't let it diminish you. I mean, there are times, I think, in all of our lives, especially as women, where we can listen to those outside voices and think, oh, that's all we are, that's all we are. But we need to tap into that voice inside of us saying, we are so much more. What can we do? You found that through your creativity, Mm. not through acting, but through creatively controlling through directing, didn't you? I think you find other parts of yourself because doors close. I mean, I kind of look back and I go, oh, you know, because when I came here, I couldn't get arrested because I was, you know, English girl via Hollywood, you know, and the Thornbirds was incredibly criticised and the Australians were rightly annoyed that the Americans had bought it and made their own version of it and it was nothing to do with Australia and I was the epitome of that. You know, it took a long time for me to live that down. And I was certainly wasn't going to get the benefit of the doubt coming here. And also I, you know, walked off with one of Australia's, you know, iconic men. And I think that was all pretty bloody annoying. So anyway, for whatever reason, also it was a time when Australia was finding its own voice. And I was very much a throwback to sort of colonial days. And I was representative much more of a sort of colonial world. And I, anyway, was unable to get really any work here. And so those doors closed. And so I really did have to find another opportunity. I had started having kids 
And then I went back to university and I graduated in communications. And then I was dabbling whether I was going to do journalism or write a book. And in the end, my history, my experience with screenwriting and scripts was really, that's where I was strongest, really. So then I went back to writing scripts and to getting on the other side of the camera, which for many years I'd felt was absolutely, the women couldn't cross that line. I'd only had male directors. And so for me to think that I could have the cheat to be the, oh, the, the boss. story, the boss, the boss of the story, yeah. Or the, yeah, to basically make, not necessarily much boss, but to have the creative... Um, or creative oh, control. Yeah, the creative control. Yeah, creative control. <laughs> <laughs> um, to have the creative control was, uh, you know, what cheek. So it took me a long time to realise, you know, of course in Australia we had Gillian and we had Jane and they made it look like it was very possible. They made it look like it was very possible. But actually in actual fact it was still extremely difficult. And again, for me, the doors closed really as a director as well here whether that was age or gender or whatever, that was a very difficult path for me as well. So that pushed me into the, you know, again, into paying attention to the farming, to climate. And that led me into this other stage of my life. So none of those doors closing at the time, they're catastrophic, you know, to have to reinvent yourself all over again. It's just exhausting. But in the end, you know, it keeps you getting, picking yourself up and going on, finding another opportunity and being relevant, staying relevant. I think women are very good at reinvention well, because, as you say, be, yeah. exactly, mm. we have to. Mm. But it also means I think we're far more open because we're listening and we're learning all the time. Maybe. But that does suggest that men aren't listening and learning. I think with men, I think they're very afraid of change. And I don't know why that is. I think they get very... And I think it's largely to do, and to looking at it in a very positive way, I think that they go, okay, my responsibility is looking after my family, making sure we have a roof over our head, we have enough money to, you know, to have choices, have emergency stuff in case we have an emergency, we have to go to hospital or whatever. And I think that is a huge, has been a huge burden to carry. And I kind of go, um, change is very counterproductive to that. You know, that can throw all of the elements to the wind. And they're hanging on for dear life to keep this control. And I, so I suppose the change thing has come over years and years and years and decades of conditioning. So I think and maybe that we're better at it because we haven't had to carry that responsibility. And because we do have to flip from, you know, motherhood to this, to that, to the other thing. And juggling and so juggling, much. And juggling so much, Yeah. But I, you know, I do try to look at it because like, Brian is very entrenched in his ways and he would never change his opinion. I mean, he's just been a Labour guy from day one. I go, do you actually ever read the policies? Do you actually know what you're actually voting for? Or are you just like, you don't care because you identify as being, you know, this die-in-the-wood Catholic Labour? You know, and I think that women are much more better at actually going, I don't identify with that. My identity is not caught up in those sorts of things which can't be changed. What is your secret? I mean, you and Brian, you've been married for, is it 40 years? Yep. They were 40 years last year, yep. Because relationships are hard work. Mm. Especially... How long have you been married? Almost 20 years. Have you? Right. Yes. Well done. Thank you. And it's, <laughs> but it's hard. I mean, I, I feel like with marrying Petey, it's the best decision I made in my life yes. because it enabled me to be who I am because right. he gets me and allows right. me to be me. 
but it still work. And there are times when I irritate him, he mm. irritates me. For you, well, I mean, what's your secret to making it go the distance? Um, I'm just endlessly patient and accommodating <laughs> <laughs> and make all the changes when he doesn't want to. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the biggest challenge for me has been moving countries. I mean, I, having to, you know, the migrant experience is not easy. It is, you know, I am English in my DNA. It's not just the first 20 years of my life that I spent there. It's in everything. It's in all my programming. So when you move to another country, you always feel on the outer. You always feel like you're not quite in sync with people, particularly in the arts, when it's about expressing the sensibility and the temperature of a country and expressing that. I mean, I'm essentially, my sensibilities are still very English, although they've got a massive layering like butter on, <laughs> on the toast um, of Oz. And I definitely feel when I go back to England that I'm at odds. I'm certainly not English anymore. And I certainly am definitely at odds with a lot of things that I go, oh my God, that is so English. And I'm able to have a perspective on it now that I've spent so much time in Australia. But it is definitely creatively, I don't think I quite have the voice of Australia. No, what it is. I think it's particularly with humour, although I totally appreciate the Australian humour. I can't really do it. You know, I would find it very difficult doing comedy here. I've still got very much English sensibility in that. But as far as going back to Brian, look, he's a good egg, you know. He's a bloody good egg and he's... Uh, loyal and got, you know, great values and uh, he still loves me. And what more could I ask, you know, really? And he's a decent fella and he loves me, full stop. You know, oh. what are you going to exchange that for, you know? And he's got the best voice. I got, does have a nice voice. Oh, yes, that love, it's yeah. that beautiful, I think, Aussie yeah. accent yeah, at has its a very best. nice one, yeah. Because it's resonant and rich and it's yeah. beautiful. No, he's a good fella. He's bloody annoying and he's deaf as a post. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I loved as well listening. I was listening to some interviews that you did when you were talking about Palm Beach, which right. is another wonderful film that you directed. Thank you. And you directed your husband yes. in it. I mean, that, oh, I can't begin. I couldn't work with my husband. We would drive each other bananas. I think I do drive him bananas. Uh, but also, there's not many people that can boss Brian and I can boss him. I, and also I... I read him very well. So I know when he's phoning it in, so to speak, a performance, you know. And doing I go, a Brian Brown. Yeah, he's just doing a Brian Brown. You know, every actor, by the time they get to a certain age, has something they know that works and they're comfortable being that character. And that's who they represent. That's who Brian represents as an Aussie icon. So to get him to do things which are contrary to that or to surprise one, with the way he interprets something. It's great fun to work with him because I'm always going for those, those moments where it's, don't just give me that. What do you really feel about this now? You know, so it's fun actually directing him. And he does get very annoyed because I'll make him do it again and again and again until I get what I want. <laughs> <laughs> and in your latest documentary, there's some wonderful moments where Brian yeah. talks about you and says how there is no way he could do what you do because he couldn't work as hard I as you do. I don't think he meant me. I think he meant farmers. Oh, I don't think go he on, meant no, me. Go on, no, take it for you because, I mean, you worked so hard on that farm. 
Yeah, I do when I'm out with Mick, that's true. But I mean, not so hard. I mean, I don't work as hard as I'm sure you're all working in here. I mean, Oh, it's, no, this is, I mean, yeah. to me, I think everybody looks is... like they're working hard, but <laughs> most of the time Mick and I are having smoke eyes. <laughs> or you make him lovely sandwiches. You make lovely sambos for your farmhand. I about that. With normally, the flowers. I normally forget lunch and he gives oh. me his. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he meant it, me, actually. I think he just meant farmers. I mean, Mick is you know, up at the crack of dawn and moving those cattle. And, you know, I join in for the day, but I'm not, I don't have the responsibility of them. And I think that's what's huge is to have responsibility of so many animals that, you know, and the welfare of them. And I don't think I want that. I think I'm a better filmmaker than I am a farmer. Let's put it that way. What is it that you think makes you a great filmmaker, that you can see between the cracks, you can see what's happening? Well, I I absolutely don't think I'm a great filmmaker. So I'll take that and I'll go, what makes me a filmmaker? One of, I mean, it's all about sensibility, isn't it? So it's just that mine is different from everybody's is different. So you obviously relate to my voice. Lots of people wouldn't. So, but it's great when you, you know, obviously I do to lots of people too. I get what they're saying. I love what they're saying. I love the way they back off from that and they, they don't hammer me over the head on this. It's a sense of truth, actually. I think it's about your truth resonates with me and your truth doesn't because I don't believe your characters. I don't believe the situation. You're hammering something for some other agenda that I'm not part of, or you think that's funny when it's not, you know, just different sense of humor. It's just different sensibilities. I don't think anyone's better or worse. And I think, you know, I don't really feel that I have the common pulse. I feel that, you know, obviously there are many people whose work absolutely resonates with a very broad um, church. And I don't think mine does. I think, you know, mine is probably very women-centric, um, I think mine is probably these days older centric. You know, I don't think a lot of kids would be relating to, to the stories that I would be telling. But don't discount, I've got two daughters, mm. 14 and 16, and my youngest daughter, I call her my eco-warrior. Oh, yeah. She's educated me about the environment. And I was talking to her last night about your doco, and she's keen to have a look at it as oh, well. I agree, yeah. The idea of how we can transform our mm-hmm. planet mm-hmm. and the tools that we can use, young people, they yeah. want to know that and too. And you know, I've had quite a number of young girls coming up to me at some of these screenings or emailing me or something saying, I want to be in soil. I love the idea of soil. And I go, what is that about women? You know, I think it's a very nurturing thing to want to give health to the soil. I don't know, but it just seems to be really appealing. Some of the great teachers of soil scientists are women. And for some reason, they've got an enormous sort of fascination with this livestock that's underneath the earth and bringing it back to health. And I think they sort of see the rather brutal, clumsy, chemical, dominating way that men have transgressed on the soil or or used the soil, that they go, no, actually, we can do it much more holistically than this and we can all be healthy. We don't have to impose these things to make the will of nature go our way. We can work all together. We have to work with nature because otherwise we're doomed. And we can listen to nature. And we can listen to nature. It's very hard listening to nature. As I say in the film, you know, you have to really get attuned to listen to it. And that's where the indigenous population, particularly the ones that are still on country, are so in tune with understanding where those messages are coming from. Ah, that bird sound, that there, that means that. That on that tree means this rustling up here means that. 
an extraordinary night. I've got horses. The horses have an amazing understanding of what is coming. They'll know when a storm is coming. They'll know when it's going to, you know, when they're going to have a cold night, just the different behaviors that you observe. But it is subtle, as Kenny Walker, the indigenous fellow in my film says, you have to be on nature for it to get inside your head. And it's true, when I'm on the farm, I'm reading it and I'm blown away with it. Was it Kenny also who mentioned about, with the animals, that they're like a vein? Yes, that we're all connected and by I this vein. I love that. Isn't that, good? Yeah. that I found so powerful mm. and a really extraordinary way of thinking, yes, we're all interconnected. Yeah, yeah. Let's now go to the food. You're verified and you're very much encouraging people to be buying beef and produce from farms that are verified. Yeah. So I think part of my impotence was not understanding the power of my purse, not understanding the power that an individual can have. And it just takes the effort of going, what is behind this food? How was this food made? Where has it come from? What was sprayed all over it? What was killed in order for it to be here on my plate? How delicately was it brought into fruition? Was it brought to life? And that was a whole world that opened up for me. I mean, I shudder at my ignorance before I started looking into this. If we were all healthy and thriving, you know, this would just be mute, what I'm saying. But we're not healthy and thriving. So many of us have endocrine diseases, which is all to do with our gut imbalance. So it is about paying attention to where your food comes from, being slightly obsessive about, yes, also the taste is so much better when you have organic and getting less precious about how your food looks and actually going for this may not look as shiny and as red and waxed, but it's actually probably tastier and almost certainly better for you. But be good about your labels, find out what's in the food, where it's come from, how organic it really is. And I mean by organic, how little inputs are in it, that it's just itself for itself. And my daughter now has the Good Farm Shop, which is basically buying all of her food from organic small farmers and that she does ready meals. Oh, this sounds brilliant. This is what I want all hospitals to have this because this is just full of as much goodness as you can get. You just know when you're eating those meals that it's coming from the best source So we need to become much more conscious about what we buy and when we go into a restaurant, you know, is this free-range bacon or were these pigs in horrible little stalls where they can barely turn around and they're lying in their own poop? You know, you need to answer those questions, particularly if you're an animal welfare person or you care about animals or you care about the environment. So you cannot care about those things and keep on buying crap where those things are abused. Anyway, that's my rant. But you're spot on. You spoke earlier about a sense of belonging, where it is that you belong. Do you think now it's on the farm? Have you found your country, so to speak, or do you still feel not dislocated, but have you found home? Um, I've definitely found home, yes, and I cannot believe it's taken me so long to get there, but I think it has to take a long time to feel you're part of something. It has taken me a long time. And I think that's because I'm in Australia as a creative. Having become a farmer and the interest that I've developed in the farm and how it all works and just makes me love it, revere it, appreciate all the people around me who are helping me. And, you know, it's like anything. The more you know about something, the more invested you are and the more you appreciate it, I suppose. 
Rachel Ward, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It is such an honour and a joy and a privilege to meet you and talk with you. I forgot I was actually (laughs) talking for anybody else. Oh, yay. But thank you. And as I said, I love your documentary. Thank you. Great. Keep on doing it because it's inspiring and empowering because it gives us all a sense, I believe, of actually we can do something. We can't just put our hands up and go, it's all too hard. I think there are other women who look at it and go, Blimey, I'm only 65. I could do that too. Yes. You know, because we've all got, you know, a lot of us have got our health and our vigour still. It is not over yet. And there's still a lot that we can get out and and do. And as good as the boys, the well, younger boys yeah, too. Yeah, but there's a lot of living to be done yeah, still. Yeah, a lot of living to be done still, yeah. And thank you for showing right. us that. Pleasure. <laughs> How phenomenal is Rachel? For me, that was a real bucket list moment because I've admired Rachel and the work that she does from afar for so long. So to have that opportunity to sit down and talk with her and explore that extraordinary brain and heart of hers was such a privilege. Now do yourself a favour and go and see her wonderful documentary, Rachel's Farm. It's going to be in cinemas from the 3rd of August. Now, if you've seen the film and if you're inspired to learn more, there are plenty of ways that you can get involved. We've included a link in our show notes where you can find resources and take action. Because the point is, and I think Rachel said this so well, we can all make a difference just in those small ways. Now, if you want more big conversations like this, follow the Jessro big talk show podcast. It means you will never, ever miss an episode. And I love doing this so much and so does my producer, Nick. And we want to grow our podcast community. And the best way that we can do that is by you talking about it. Talk to your friends, talk to your family about the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast, because I love hearing from you, but talk to everyone else so we can really grow this important Big Talk community. And if you enjoyed this episode with Rachel, I reckon you will love my chat with Frances O'Connor. There's always like naysayers who are like, oh, let's see how you go kind of thing. I did notice my Aussie accent in those moments did become stronger. (laughs) Yay! Because, you know, that that kind of thing when people kind of say, oh, I'm not sure if you can do it, just actually makes me more determined. And I do think that is slightly part of the Aussie spirit, maybe. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe, executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter.